I'm Michaela LaFrac, and this is 51st, a series about DC's fight for representation. We're back in your feeds with a special episode because, you know, a lot has happened since we left off in 2020. We're recording this the day after a historic and, frankly, overwhelming day of news here in Washington. Insurrectionists stormed the U.S. Capitol building. Congress officially certified the presidential election results. And in Georgia, Democrats won both runoff elections for the state's two Senate seats. That means Democrats control the Senate by a hair. The insurrection at the Capitol really highlighted how D.C.'s lack of local control affects the lives and the safety of its 700,000 residents. Then the Georgia election results gave statehood activists a glimmer of hope that a statehood bill could actually pass this year. But as ever, there are still lots of hurdles in the way. So is 2020 the year of statehood? To walk us through the news of this week and how it all relates to statehood, I'm joined by my colleague Martin Ostermule, who frankly knows more about the inner workings of the district than pretty much anyone else I know. Hi, Martin. Hey, Michaela. The insurrection at the Capitol was honestly almost surreal to watch. Trump supporters overwhelmed U.S. Capitol police and broke into the Capitol building. One of the big questions that a lot of people had was, how in the world were these people able to break into the U.S. Capitol? One really important thing to clarify here is that the Capitol building itself isn't actually under local D.C.'s control. It's controlled by the federal government. So security there falls to the U.S. Capitol Police. They eventually called in D.C.'s police force for support, but that was after the crowds had stormed the building. Another big issue with security involved the D.C. National Guard. So, Martin, can you explain the situation with the Guard? Because it's a little confusing, but it is important. Well, unlike all the states, D.C.'s National Guard is controlled by the president, not the governor, because we don't actually have a governor. We just have a mayor. And that caused delays this week because Mayor Bowser put in a request for National Guardsmen to come help the U.S. Capitol Police when chaos was breaking out at the Capitol. Now, I was told by city officials that that request was initially denied and then it was delayed. But the point is, it took longer than city officials were comfortable with to get National Guardsmen down to the Capitol to help control the situation down there. And then, you know, I I also saw again and again on social media people pointing out the fact that there was some blatant racism at play in terms of how local and national law enforcement dealt with pro-Trump protesters versus Black Lives Matter protesters. Right. You only need to go back to last June to really see a stark contrast in how policing impacted the, the, the two events that happened. Last June, there was people out protesting after the killing of George Floyd. D.C. police were out in force and President Trump brought federal troops in and actually took control of the National Guard. And so there was this famous event where he basically used troops under his control to clear Lafayette Square for his photo op in front of the church. Now, and at the same time, hundreds of people were arrested at these protests. There was one protest on Swan Street in DuPont Circle where 289 people were arrested by D.C. police officers in one night. Now, contrasted to what happened down at the Capitol, you're talking people actually storming the U.S. Capitol, interrupting an act of Congress, police officers not arresting all that many people on site and actually escorting some people out. And that prompted a lot of questions over 
why did they do that? Was it because of, was it some sort of tactic? Was it because they just didn't have control of the situation? But there was lots of folks, including Black Lives Matter protesters that were pointing out, well, lots of the folks who stormed the Capitol were white and were supporters of the president. While during the Black Lives Matter protests, there was a lot of black, Latino, Asian American protesters that were arrested. So there was definitely a racial component to, to consider. Now, all of these issues with security kind of highlighted for a lot of people the difference between local D.C. and federal Washington. So this seems like a good time to turn to D.C. statehood. The new Congress was sworn in just after New Year's, and Eleanor Holmes Norton, D.C.'s delegate to Congress, wasted absolutely zero time in getting D.C. statehood front and center. That's right. She immediately reintroduced her bill, H.R. 51, which would grant statehood to to D.C., You might remember this bill from last year. It's the one that would basically carve out a small federal district where Congress and the White House would be and the rest of D.C.'s land would become a new state. Now, that bill passed the House in June. It was a historic moment because no no state bill had passed the House of Congress before. There was lots of celebrations in the district, but it never came to a vote in the Senate. It just kind of died. But why exactly? Did they run out of time or was it some complicated strategy thing I don't understand? I mean, it basically just comes down to the composition of the Senate. While the House was fully Democratic and they could get the, 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 the numbers of the votes that they needed to get the bill passed, the Senate was controlled and is still controlled at this point by Republicans. So it's not that the bill didn't even get a vote. It didn't even get a hearing. It didn't even move forward. It just got stuck because Republicans don't support D.C. statehood. And then, of course, even if it had miraculously passed, President Trump would have never signed the bill into law, right? Exactly. President Trump was on the record saying essentially that D.C. statehood would never happen on his watch. Okay, but like you said, that was last year, last Congress. And this year we have a brand new Congress in place and Norton is starting the statehood process all over again with a new bill. But the Senate has has been this really big question since November. It hasn't been clear who will control the Senate. So we don't know if this bill would just die again like it did last year. But yesterday we got some answers. As as we all know, all eyes have been on Georgia. It's had these two runoff elections. And yesterday we found out the Democrats won both of those Senate seats. So that means the Senate is now evenly split. And Kamala Harris, a Democrat, is going to be the tie-breaking vote. So this gives Democrats just this dee-dee-dee-dee-weedy majority in the Senate. But Democrats do control the House, the Senate, and the White House. But before we go any further, Martin, can you just drive home for us how remarkable these Georgia election results are? Yeah. So, I mean, the long story is that Georgia has been gradually becoming more Democratic for years now. But this is the first year that the state swung blue during a presidential election since, I think, the 1990s, if memory serves. Now, for a lot of people, this was a total surprise. Georgia is not the sort of place that many people would think would fall into the Democratic column. But at the same time, there's been a lot of folks on the ground in Georgia, people like Stacey Abrams, other other black men and women who have been active registering people to vote. And that made a huge difference in the way that Georgia voted this time around. Statehood advocates here in D.C., especially black statehood advocates, were watching all of this really closely and, and were inspired by it. I, I spoke to Stasha Rhodes earlier about this, and she's the head of a statehood advocacy organization called 51 for 51. And this is what she had to say. Black and brown voters in Georgia have made their voices heard uh, that they want a more just, a fair and equitable America. 
Uh, and look, we can't have that America while 700,000 mostly black and brown residents of Washington, D.C. lack equal representation, lack full voting rights in our nation's capital. It's impossible. But now Rhodes finally sees this path forward. There's a blue House, a blue Senate, albeit barely, and blue president. And this all makes it seem like a statehood bill is good to go. Damn right it does. But there are still two really big hurdles in the way. The first is that support for statehood isn't clearly split down party lines, right? Martin, not every Democrat totally supports it. Right. I mean, a majority of Democrats in the Senate do support statehood, and that number has been growing over the years. But there are there still are some holdouts. One famous holdout is Joe Manchin. He's a Democrat from West Virginia, and he's been on the record saying that he doesn't believe that the district should be a state. Now, without his vote, this isn't going to move anywhere in a closely divided Senate. And a big reason really is the filibuster. Okay, yeah, we should pause here and really dive into this because the filibuster is the big kahuna. So let's say the statehood bill flies through the House like it did last year. But when it gets to the Senate, 51 votes is not enough to pass the bill, right? And that's because of the filibuster. Can you explain this? Yeah. So if you remember back to your high school civics class, you know that the Senate has something called the filibuster. And that basically means you need 60 votes to close debate on most most legislation. Um, and that's always been a hurdle for a, a bill like D.C. statehood, where if you can't even get all Democrats, which would be just a bare, bare majority of the Senate itself, how are you going to get the 60 to actually get over the filibuster itself. So to totally sidestep the filibuster, the statehood bill or any bill, in fact, needs 60 votes, which is more than Eleanor Holmes Norton can count on right now. This seems so incredibly frustrating for advocates, but I know a bunch of them are trying to get rid of it, like Stasha Rhodes. I can promise you that there are advocates across Washington, that there are advocates across the country who are dedicated to achieving elimination of the filibuster for statehood. Uh, And I am confident that we're going to be able to get this in 2021. So, Martin, how exactly do you get rid of the filibuster? Well, there's two ways to get it done. One is probably not going to happen because it would take a supermajority of senators to agree to get rid of the filibuster. And most Republicans have said they do not want to get rid of it. And there's some Democrats who don't want to get rid of it either. The other way is you basically change the rules of procedure within the Senate itself for specific types of legislation. And that's happened in the past. If you remember, a lot of just a lot of judges who are appointed to federal courts now only need a majority vote. And that's because of both decisions made by Democrats when they were in the majority in the Senate and more recently Republicans. So if you're a judge, you get nominated for a federal court position. You just need the 51 votes to get through the Senate. For legislation, though, you need the full 60. You have to get over the filibuster. So, again, there are ways to chip away at the filibuster. They're just, you know, there's some risks. So how likely do you think this actually is, though? And be real with me here. Do you think they're really going to abolish the filibuster in 2021? Well, you talk to any statehood activist and they say, you know, this is the right thing. This is the right fight to fight when it comes to getting rid of the filibuster. This is about democracy and voting rights. We should totally put it all on the line and Democrats should fight to get rid of the filibuster and pass statehood. Now, there's a lot of other folks who say, but let's be realistic. Joe Biden is coming in preaching you know, a message of unity, of bringing Democrats and Republicans together after a very divisive four years of the Trump presidency. Is he really going to make getting rid of the filibuster, which is very controversial, is he going to make that one of his first acts in office? Is he going to make it an act in office at all? Is he going to push it? That's where we're still unclear. Honestly, this feels like I don't know, the the cycle of statehood, which we've been covering in depth in our podcast uh, that's gone on for for 
frankly, decades, if not centuries at this point. Every time it seems like Washingtonians get a tiny step closer, some new barrier pops up. Right. And look, I'm generally as cynical, as pessimistic as you just sounded, but I think you have to be optimistic in the way you look at it now and statehood activists are trying to be. Just think about the fact that Georgia is now completely blue. Joe Biden won it. The two de- the, the two Senate seats are held by Democrats. That's something that years ago most people found to be or thought to be impossible. But advocates worked for years to make those wins in Georgia possible. And it seems like D.C. leaders are really amped up right now and they're really they really want to push statehood as far as they can go. Mayor Muriel Bowser has already said she wants to get a statehood bill on President Biden's desk within the first hundred days of office. I guess if that happens, we'll be back to making another podcast together, right? You know it. All right, Martin, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Fifty First is produced by me, Michaela Lafrac, and senior producer Ponce Rutch. Patrick Fort produced and mixed this episode. Additional production comes from the WAMU podcast team, Ruth Tam and Jonklin Hill. Our chief content officer, Monica Cashfi, oversees all the content we make at WAMU. If you're as excited to talk about statehood and other local DC issues as we are, hit that subscribe button. We'll be back in your feed soon, and thank you so much for listening. Okay.